So we've got like nine and a half million job openings and we've got nine and a half million people unemployed. So what's the deal? Why don't we just hire them? It's the half people. Just the half people. Yeah, we did. I need to put an ad out for half people. That that's they probably why we're links. yeah it's it was, hobbits. It, it's probably why they're having trouble filling those positions. That's hobbits are hard to, to find. Shrink, has something to do with the shrinking population. Oh, oh I see what you did with, with the shrinking. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's economics jokes. Yes. Uh, those of you not laughing, I don't know why you're listening to this program. We are, that's, that is a microcosm of who we are. And we're back. Welcome back to the Personal Wealth Coach with Jake and Jeff McClure. We are the Ball Duo. We're here to talk to you about economics and the, yes, finance, anything to do with money. Um, and there's, so far, we've been covering the really, really big picture about what's going on in the world and how it does affect us and what's the market been doing and um, some questions from listeners as well. First question that we got before we started the program. So this question's yep. actually an hour old. That's how long this person's been waiting. John, thank you. His question is still waiting. I, I, I would. He told us when the we went off the air. So it's cool. Possible that he's still listening. We haven't lost all of our people. It's amazing. We haven't lost, but we haven't lost both listeners. Right. Um. What? I'm sorry. I wasn't listening. What? Yeah. Uh, so John, his first question is secular stagnation. How about, that's a really fantastic way to start any conversation, by the way. Just walk up and say, so how do you feel about secular stagnation? And his question is, does it exist and is it short or long-term impact? And he's got, as is one of my favorite meta moments of every week, he gets a paper copy of the Wall Street Journal in which he takes a digital picture of it and emails it to us so that we're looking at a digital copy of an analog copy and we can back it up with our digital version of the same newspaper. So, (laughs) yes, it's very deep, very meta. He's circled an area. It says, former U.S. Treasury Secretary Lawrence Summers, by the way, he goes by Larry, Larry Summers. He argued in 2014 that aging populations, high savings, and weak private investment are persistent trends in our era that make it hard for economies to operate at their potential. And he dubbed that secular stagnation. And it's a, it's a real thing. And if you think about where we are right now, we have an aging population. It's true. We have high savings. Well, I mean, people talk about how much cash is out there. We don't have weak private investment right now. We have the opposite. We have an explosion in private investment like we have not seen since World War II. And that's with inflation and population adjustments. If you don't adjust for population, there's just absolutely nothing like this we've seen before. Larry Summers was looking at Japan when he said this. High savings, they're not interested in taking a lot of risk. This can lead to a stagnation in innovation and a lot of things. It can cause the entire economy to slowly shrink. And that's happened in Japan. Now, their per capita economy has grown during the same period. So while the whole country has shrunk in monetary power, each individual in the country has gotten stronger. How's that for weird? Shrinking populations are weird. 
So is it a thing and is it going to affect us right now? Well, no, it's not appropriate for who we are right now. We could see this in our future if we continue to have an aging population and more of us turn farther away from the riskiness of new innovation. But it's not what we're seeing right now. And that was a really, really long-winded answer to say, don't worry about it. There you go. Yeah, there's, there is something to worry about. And that is if we continue to have anti-immigration feelings in the United States, we can get in some trouble. Yeah. Japan is totally anti-immigration. I mean, it's very, 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 very difficult to immigrate into Japan, like approaching impossibility, like it is in many other countries around the world. And as a result, their population is indeed stagnant. It's actually shrinking at this point. Right. Rapidly. And they also have a very conservative culture. So they save a lot of money and they invest relatively small amounts of money. The government has stepped in historically to do public works projects and utilities and infrastructure to make up the difference. And it's worked reasonably well in Japan, but there's, there's an end to that. Of course, they also have a very, very high income tax rate. Yeah. In the yeah. United States, we tend to. Well, they have encourage... to have a high income tax so that they can pay the interest on the debt that they owe to the same people that they're charging the income taxes from. You got it. Yeah. Yeah. You got Basically, it. people are paying their taxes so they can borrow it back, so they can loan it. It's really weird. Yeah. It's Japan. The government is borrowing from the people who are paying the taxes, it's Japan. And they have to pay interest to the people who are paying the taxes, but their interest rates extremely low so it's actually a good deal for the government and the people as long as they don't want a great deal of growth how's that for confusing right and is there a danger to the united states yes there is if we continue to have restrictive immigration policies and we are we have ex we have some very restrictive policies right now then our population will shrink and our population will grow older and more and more people will be on social security and retired and not working and less and less people and will be working and that could be bad. That would be bad over a period of time. It's important to remember, and I realize this may run, rub political feathers the wrong direction for well, some people. As economists, that's what we do. We just, yeah, in the same sentence, we can ruffle the feathers of both major political parties. And they look at us like, you must be part of the other side. And both sides are saying it to us. So That's true. We are part of always part of the other side. Yeah. The issue is that the United States is a nation of immigrants primarily. There's only about... I was thinking somebody said 8 million Native Americans left in the United States, pure blood Native Americans. That may be a low number, but here's the point. We are a nation of immigrants, and our innovations have coincided with waves of immigration in the United States. If we cut off immigration and say we're just going to leave everything as it is, it'll stagnate. and People will get older, and they'll get more comfortable, and then we'll go broke. Yeah, if people doubt that innovation is connected to immigration let me just start naming some names here steve jobs elon musk watt bell tesla einstein i could go on <laughs> these are immigrants uh, these are the immigrant wave that's funding and running our technological innovation right now and have been since the beginning uh, it's, it's who we are is that we bring in fresh blood constantly don't forget Arnold Schwarzenegger. No, well, I haven't seen a lot of technological innovations. And we have another question uh, from John. And he's talking about the Wall Street Journal. And he gets, he reads it. And uh, he says, every issue has the previous day's market results. 
a lot of info, charts, graphs, statistics. Are there five to six items to look at to get a macro overview of the overall market? The easy answer to that is you really don't need to look at it in depth every day. We don't. I I don't look in depth at the market on a day-to-day basis. It's too much information and it's not relevant. TMI. Yeah, or uh, TLDR, which is my favorite. Too long, didn't read. Uh, Just put that on the end of lots of stuff. So when we look at it, we do touch on some metrics. Some of the stuff that we look at more on a monthly is what's the overall price to earnings uh, ratio for the entire market forward looking. Uh, And that's a big metric. What would be a metric that that is uh, one of your favorite metrics looking forward or back? I do look. I do look at the price to earnings ratio pretty carefully, and I also look at the moving averages. I look at a couple of moving averages. The bottom line to it is, yes, and I like to look at the growth and value indices and see what's going on. Right. Uh, right now, the growth, the large cap growth, is leading the uh, the market upward. It's driving the train, and it's. I don't know if it's in those charts that you're looking at, but I like to see. Have to hunt around for it sometimes to see what percentage of the S&P 500 is composed of, how, of of a small number of stocks and then look at what those small number of stocks are trading in. Right. And that's, we're in a bull market. We're in a classic bull market in a growth period, which means that we are led by large cap growth organizations, large cap, large cap growth companies. I have to say that and not put an R in. So one, um, one really, really cool thing that I used to look at is just kind of do a quick catalog of positive or negative headlines about the economy and the market. That's um, good. And, and that's, that's not a statistic that they'll do for you. That's one you'll have to come up with on your own. But that's something that we look at very much is if all of the headlines are consistently glowingly optimistic, we start getting nervous. If you have a really good mix of pessimism and optimism, that's pretty good. If it's all pessimism, that is fantastic. And it's because if the majority of people, the majority of people are based on majority of headlines, the same concept, this opinion, the media tends to feed to you what you are prepared to eat, which means that if you're optimistic, they will feed you optimism. Uh, unless there's something horrible that happens and then they can sell a lot of papers by um, taking your optimism and twisting it to pessimism. But by far, the best sellers are pessimism. Once that goes away and it's all optimism, that means the last buyers are bought. They've already put their money where their mouth is. If everybody says at the cocktail party the market's going up, then they've already invested, which means every, now we're at maybe the top of the top. We're not seeing that right now, but that's one of the things that we look for. How many optimistic versus pessimistic headlines are there? There's a lot of pessimistic headlines right now, which is fantastic. So that wasn't what he was asking for, but that was what we gave him anyway. Those charts are like reading tea leaves. Without getting to to drink the tea. That's the the thing that I don't like. (laughs) That's terrible. I don't know if you ever tried to read tea leaves. I've tried to read tea leaves and I couldn't make anything out of it. So obviously I'm not psychic, but. The important thing is to recognize that most of those are are just data. They're just noise. And if you're an economist, you can probably you because there's so much data in the Wall Street Journal and other sources like that. You can you can take your prejudice about what you think the market's going to do and build a case for it. Yeah. 
if you're trading in a specialized area, which a few people, which quite a few people do, very tiny little specialized areas, some of those charts are very important. I just basically look at the market as a whole and look at the economy as a whole. No, no. The bigger the bigger the numbers, the 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 better it works. In other words, the bigger the picture we're looking at, the better it works in the long term. Right. Now this it's leads. To, go go ahead. It's important to remember something. With all that data, nobody forecast the market collapse last year, the drop in the market last year. Right. Nobody forecast the market drop in 1987. They didn't have as much data, but they had a lot of data at the time. And the data is just something that the Wall Street Journal feeds its readers because somebody wants to read it. Somebody wants to see it. And this um, this is the perfect segue. I have to use this now because go ahead. I've been pregnant with this all episode. You've been pregnant? Yes, with with this data. I must give birth. The Labor Department will be will be pleased. Wharton just came out with a paper. Wharton Good. Uh, is that is they come up with papers quite a bit. Um, an academic paper. Uh, it was done by the accounting professor Jeremy Michaels, and its title is "Retail Investor Trade and Pricing of Earnings," which doesn't tell you what it's about. Basically, what he <laughs> says in here is that these new retail investors—what does that mean? What's a retail investor? For many years, probably a decade. The vast majority of the market moves that have taken place in any given period have been from large traders, institutional traders, ones that are managing mutual funds, ones that are managing pension funds. Those big moves move to the market. Well, the pandemic hit and a lot of retail investors went in individually and started buying and selling stock. And that's changed the way the market moves. It's fascinating. It's not the first time it's happened, but it's worth looking at. And so in his studies, Dr. Michael looks, Dr. Michaels looks at it and he says, what's going on here? And what he found out is that the market tends to move based on any news, positive or negative, in this new or refreshed era of retail investors being a big mover. Even... And it says any earnings surprise tends to lead to a jump upward in the price of that company. And he dug deeper in the behavioral aspect of it and said basically what people are doing is they see the name of a company. It doesn't matter if it's a positive or a negative, And then they look up that company in their trading app. So the news hits. They look at it. It's that old thing about any any news is good news, even if it's negative. Uh, for the market right now in the retail side, just having your name, uh, your company name associated with some kind of surprise, positive or negative, has tended to cause the price of the company to go up because the new retail investors are buying based on the research that they're doing at this moment, not based on a great deal of previous knowledge about the company. So the fact that the company's name appears makes them do research on the company. If they like the company, they buy it. In a lot of cases, people buy it because it's been going up since the news came out about the negative earnings or the positive. It's, it's fascinating. Um, we had an era, and we talked about this during that era, of surprisingly low volatility following the Great Recession. A lot of the retail investors got scared out of the market. It was just the big institutional guys the averages were beating the active managers consistently. As soon as you get into this kind of volatility again, where people are buying basically because they see the name of the company, the professionals come in and start making better profits than usual. This is throughout history. 
Whether that happens again is worth watching. I think it's fascinating. So, I mean, it's strange to think he's looking at what metrics do we look at? There's so much to take in. And I think most people that are reading the news, especially finance news for the first times in their life, they've been doing this for maybe 12 months and they're still trying to get used to it. There's so much coming in. They see the name, they buy it. Like you said, a lot a lot of it has to do with the fact that there's no commissions being charged to buy and sell stocks. Right. Or no and obvious a lot of people, ones. There's a very fundamental difference between speculative purchases of worthless companies or nearly worthless companies and investing. It's a worthless company. This has been a consistent through ever since tulip bulbs in seventeen or sixteen twenty or sixteen forty, I can't remember which there's, tulip bulb yeah, there's tulip a, bulb bubble. There's a great book on it called Tulipomania. And there's uh, are the South Seas Company, which never had any actual earnings, but drove the English stock market first all the way up and then into a crash. Or the dot-com bubble. The, the point is people buy something and it price goes up, so they buy some more of it because the price goes up and then other people start buying it and the price goes up. And then finally somebody starts to sell and the price goes down. That doesn't work in the long term. A few people are going to, it's, that's what's called a zero, well actually it's a sub-zero trade. The, it's the issue is that people who are buying it may make money when it goes up if they sell in the right time, but it's the fr- the guy with the quickest twitch on the finger. It's it's a gambling issue. Yeah, and, and most it's people the trading of money back and forth between different people, and there's no actual money being made by the company. Most of the uh, retail buyers right now, and this is from lots of different sources, including Robinhood. Uh, most of the retail investors that are making these trades that is feeding this other data don't know when they would sell. And how do we know that? They haven't set limit orders. They haven't set a sell order. So they purchased a thing and the professionals are ready to sell. And what you were saying, they've got that twitch finger. They're ready, only it's not even a twitch finger. It's a preset sell order. Hit this, sell. Most of the retail investors don't have that. They bought it. They don't really know why they bought it except that they saw the name. Wow, don't know what that was about. It's, it's almost time for our news break. Maybe there, was more, there were more commercials to play. And we're back. Welcome back to The Personal Wealth Coach with Jake and... Jeff. McClure. We are the ball duo. I have a big kind of update to the world. Coal, the energy producing coal, the dangerous and dirty, but also the old fallback is having a massive resurgence this, resurgence this year. It is... Of all of the power sources, it is the one most likely to be used as energy production takes off this year. Most of the energy production that is growing is going to be in the uh, Asian continent, not just China, but all across Asia. Uh, And most of that electricity growth is going to come directly from coal. And it's going to come from all sources of coal. The United States is a major source of coal. You had a statistic about um, hold on, we got to say it. The coal trains. Did you want to yeah, say we've that? Yeah, the coal trains are back. They're I just like saying coal train. Well, that's because it's a musician who has that name. Yeah, yeah. But uh, the coal trains across the United States are running in max capacity, which they certainly weren't like a year ago. Yeah. Uh, and even two years ago. Plants, there are power plants and other places that need a lot of coal right now. 
it's not good for for climate change, and it certainly does. It's going to bother a lot of environmentalists. But it's the reality is that's what's happening. Yeah, and, and the reason is because we still have across the world quite a lot of existing power plants that, believe it or not, were designed to run on coal. And it's one thing to take them offline when you've got a new plant coming up to take up the load. But when the load goes up above what you were expecting, it doesn't make any sense to leave perfectly functioning power plants non-functional. So this is, as, as we've talked about in the past, coal is not going to be replaced because of environmental concerns. Nothing ever is replaced purely based on environmental concerns without something, some new technology that's somehow cheaper and better to replace it with. And in the case of coal, natural gas did that. Well, across Asia, there is a, an extreme dearth of natural gas. I just wanted there's to a say dearth? dearth. Yeah. You said deem, I said dearth. So we wanted there's to say it. There's a dearth in Asia. Yeah, there's, there's a, a dearth, dearth in Asia. Asia. They don't have a lot of natural gas. They don't have a lot of easy petroleum in most of Asia, but they have coal. And there's a, there's a reason for that, ge- geologically speaking. Just look up the term lignin. It's really cool. Coal and lignin. There's a fascinating story about all the coal in the world happened during the same time period everywhere on the planet. And it had to do with the advent of lignins in plants. So coal is there even if other forms of, of fossil fuels are not. And China's using it. And we've mentioned this in the past as well. China is the number one producer of plastic on the planet. And they're not importing petroleum products to do it. They're, they're mostly China-centric in their sourcing of plastic, which is a petroleum product. So how are they doing that? And the answer is that the American company Honeywell has a patented methodology of producing plastics from coal. And they are making most of the money on that patent in China. This is how China is the number one producer of plastic and yet don't even come up on most of the graphs for where petroleum products come from. And that's just a statement. Coal has still got a long way to hang out with us. And we're seeing it now when you have a big electricity demand. During 2020, electricity demand in the United States dropped by about 1%. And it's expected to go up for this year by about 5%. So in a recovery index, that means that we're way above the power usage that we were two years ago pre-pandemic. Well, how did that happen? Remote work is one of the methodologies. We're using electrical systems to do our traveling for us. So it's offset, but our electricity use is up. Uh, and that's something that we should expect into the future as we get more and more digital, expect more and more electricity use. And if we have better and cheaper ways of doing it, then that's what we'll go to regardless of the environment. Because, well, this is a simple thing. Uh, you and I, we run a business. If somebody's working remotely and they say, my electricity uh, is going up, uh, we say, well, you need to use your electricity to get to work, so just keep using it. And we don't say, well, is it from coal? Where are you getting your electricity? What does it taste like? That's irrelevant at the business level. And it's because we're not in the business of producing electricity. That's the way it is everywhere. So don't expect coal to be replaced I mean, a lot of environmentalists, when they turn their lights on, coal's involved there somewhere. If they say, well, not for me, you know, this is, this is one of the greatest jokes out there. It's 
just most people don't know it's a joke. You can buy, in the state of Texas, you can buy electricity that says on the paper it's 100% renewable. You know about this? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Georgetown, as an example, says 100% of its power is renewable energy, and they've invested in some renewable energy. But they're on the grid with everybody else, and the way they say it's 100% is that um, they're buying a percentage of the renewable energy, but the problem is that the energy is all mixed up into one mighty electricity bucket. How's that for an analogy for you? I would love to see that bucket, by the way. It's all mixed together. You have to. I mean, there's only one power line that goes to your house. There's only one power line that goes to these big transformer stations. So all the power gets mixed together and as a percentage in the contract, you're buying a percentage that says it's 100% renewable, but it really isn't. The electricity you're getting is mixed with everybody else's electricity. Well, they're actually they're actually paying for the electricity that comes from renewable sources. Correct. They're paying they're paying the renewable sources. Exactly. But it still gets mixed together. together in a big big pipeline. It's like the it's like it's all getting mixed together in a big pipe. You're right. It's not a pipe. It's a wire. You know what we're saying. Well, pipes and wires are a lot alike. They are. I mean, you get the same resistance and pressure. You just have different terms for them. Um, this, this, is, this is the reality, is that when you're even the most environmentalist you can be, when you turn on your light switch, unless you're completely off the grid and tuned into solar and wind only, you've just got the power cord going out to your windmill and you're and your solar panels, then you're getting power from everywhere. And people don't get that. They, they want to say in some kind of highfalutin context that they are doing the right way. And they are. I mean, the demand is there. The economy picks up if there's a demand for renewable energy, and there is, and it's getting cheaper, and it is, then there's more of it. But when we have a spike in demand, coal makes a resurgence. And we should expect that for the coming decades, too, because these power plants, as long as they're being maintained and able to be brought back online, are a nice reserve item. We shouldn't get but, rid of them until we have something to replace them with. By the way, coal was an environmental improvement over wood. Absolutely. Because you don't have to cut down trees to get coal. Just look at Haiti. Haiti has yeah, no trees. Could. Gone. Because they cut down the trees to burn them. It's going on in the... It's going on in South America, too. No, oh, it, it happened in Scotland and Ireland. When we think of the highlands of Scotland and the highlands, or I mean, Ireland in general, these beautiful green hills rolling into the distance. Well, 600 years ago, those were covered in forests. Well, the sheep had something to do with it, too. Yeah, sheep. I mean, the sheep were there after the people cut all, down all the trees to burn for, and then they said, hey, there's no trees here. We can use sheep and keep the trees away forever. And they still have. So environmentalism, I don't know. It's, it's one of those really strange things that the cause that you're associated with is not ever as simple as you think it is, ever, when it comes to something big like this. And uh, as the economy changes, as technology changes, as it is cheaper for solar or wind to replace other forms, we still have to have the other forms, because sometimes the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining. And those happen to occur simultaneously more often than not. When the wind is blowing 
really hard. There's no sun, but you also can't get a lot of power from that high wind without overloading your wind plants. So making sure that we do this correctly with a lot of diversification as we move forward is important. And all of that was to say that coal isn't dead. It will eventually go away because technology is replacing it unless we find some other method that's safer and cleaner to get it out of the ground and safer and cleaner to burn it. And we might if electricity demand keeps going up. That's just the bottom line is that if there's a market for it, then people will bring it to that market. Pretty simple. Thank you very much for listening, if you have. If you haven't, then no thanks to you. Um, yeah. If you'd like to talk to us off the air, we have voicemail wake- waiting locally during the week at... 254-947-1111. Uh, real live people during the week, voicemail during the weekend, and that is also 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to the webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. You can email us through there, contact us through there, podcasts, newsletters, all that good stuff. Until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.